Father, we do come to you this morning with a sense of expectancy because all scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by you and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So please give us ears to hear what it is you're saying to us this morning, us as individuals sat here, but also us as a people, as a, a church, a community, a family together. Soften our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Kitty um, sent me an article recently. Kitty is one of our, um, our members of staff, our pastoral workers, if you're here as a guest. Um, she sent me an article recently tracking the, the history of the self-esteem movement. That is, the idea that a positive self-esteem is what people need to be able to thrive, to do well in life. So if you feel good about yourself, then you will do better in life, the, the kind of story goes, very simply. And it's a movement that started with real vigour in the 80s by, or under the eyes of a Californian politician, a guy named John Vaso Vasconcelos. I'm going to call him Vaso. He had a real agenda and he pushed it really hard, um, to try and push this idea of self-esteem around the world. One example that's given of the fruit of this movement is the idea of grade inflation in exams, so the way that grade boundaries have changed over time to make sure more and more people get better grades. An example being in the, in the States, between the late 60s and 2004, the proportion of first-year university students claiming an A average in high school rose from 18% to 48%, despite the fact that actually SATS results had fallen over that time. You see, if you lower the grade boundaries, if more people get better grades and feel better about themselves, then society is healthier, no? No, it turns out. So this guy, Vasso, commissioned this study in the 80s, various professors from the University of California, and the studies apparently showed that high self-esteem coincided with higher grades and better well-being. Except, and here's where it gets interesting, it didn't show that at all. The report actually concluded that the association between self-esteem and its expected consequences are mixed, insignificant, or absent. And basically, he changed the report. He made it say what he wanted it to say, and then he hired a PR company to spread the news, we might say the fake news, and he booked himself on Oprah and all the TV stations and all the newspaper interviews. And the tsunami of the study spread around the world. And it changed everything. It changed how we do education, policy of how you bring up children at school and how you encourage them. It changed how we deal with criminals, how you rehabilitate people back into society. It changed how parents are taught to bring up their kids. It changed the world we live in. And no one's going to listen to the actual professors from California who said, hang on, hang on, he's changed it. He's made it all up because it had already gone. And why do I start like that? What relevance does that have to our study here in Joshua, to what we're looking at in Joshua 24 today? Well, I take it that idea of self-esteem is still the water that we swim in, at least for many of us. It is still the air that we breathe in our society, and our culture, which means we can struggle with hard chapters like this one, or with truths in the Bible, the kind of things we've been seeing through Joshua these last few weeks. Truths that say we do get it wrong. Our effort is not enough. We can't do it on our own. We are broken and fallen and sinful. That is the reality of what the Bible teaches. Now our story as believers is that we are sinful and yet 
extraordinarily loved. We are broken and yet valuable and cherished, not because of what we do, not because of our performance, but because of being made in God's image. He pours out his creation love on us. He pours out his salvation love for us. And this chapter, this final chapter in Joshua, is a pretty stark example of God being real. Joshua doesn't seek, in one sense, to boost their self-esteem. He pulls no punches. He is very honest. And here's the rub for us. Here's where it really matters for us. Most of us will be able to associate with some of that. But it means that we find it hard to understand grace. Because grace by its very nature means we're not okay. You see, if we think we can do it by ourselves, that we don't need God that much actually, and we're just having a really good try and that's really what he wants from us, or I can sort out the mess by myself, thank you very much. Then when we reach chapter 24, we will struggle with some of these truths. Because Joshua is very clear with us that we can't do it by ourselves. The way the chapter works, if you have a look down, is you will see him firstly outlining God's grace. He looks back. And he outlines how God has been at work among his people for many years, up to about verse 13. And then the second half, he looks ahead and thinks through what are the implications for this grace that the Lord has poured out upon his people. Before we jump in, I want to give a couple of thoughts and ideas just from the passage as a whole to try and help you get your bearings and work out what's going on as well. Um, A couple of questions. First one, um, why Shechem? What are they doing here? You see it's there at the start of the chapter, verse 1, then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. It's near the end as well, verse 25, 26. Um, On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God and took a large stone, set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. Why Shechem? Well, it is a key location in the Bible. Shechem is an important place. It's a place of commitment and recommitment to the Lord. Um, I was telling to James Gregg on Tuesday, you can do a study tracking it and how it works out in different places, different contexts. You get it initially, foundationally, in Genesis 12, when God first appears to Abraham and makes a promise to him. Genesis 12, 6 to 7, Abraham, as he was, travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem, At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to him and says, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. So the Lord comes, gives these promises to Abraham, gives him a land, going to give you a a people. And there Abraham builds this altar to express his faith in that promise. Pages turn, you get it later on. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, buys a piece of land there. He builds an altar there. Again, a commitment and recommitment to the Lord's. His faithful covenant blessings poured out. We've seen it already in Joshua in chapter 8. There was something of a detour. Do you remember? He builds the altar again and, and splits the community in two over two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And they call upon themselves the blessings and curses of God, saying they will keep the covenant, just as Moses had urged them to. So Shechem is a geographical marker for us to say something important is happening here. This is the kind of place where covenants are remembered. 
This is a kind of place where people recommit themselves to their faithful gods. The other thing to say as well, as we look at this chapter as a whole, is that the, the structure of the chapter fits, fits some of these themes that we've been seeing again and again coming through the book. It, it draws together various broad themes and ideas and challenges and encouragements, and particularly where you get these two halves. So the first half, I've called it the drama of grace. You see God's faithfulness to his people. You see that he is at work. He has been protecting and preserving his people. God is faithful, and yet the second half then, 14 to 28, the, the demands of grace, because God is faithful, because that is the kind of God he is, how do we respond to him? How do we live in response, in relationship with that kind of a God? And we've seen that again and again through Joshua. We've seen God's kindness and his faithfulness, and we've seen the question of well, what does that mean for us then? How do we live in response? Do we just put our feet up? Or do we do something about the grace that he's poured upon us? So let's have a look. Um, first point then, the drama of grace, verse 1 to 13. And if you, if you have a look down, you'll see Joshua reminds them of where they've come from. And he essentially says, this should never have happened. This should never have happened. And he gives them a little Bible overview, four sections. He he doesn't Photoshop it. It's very real. There are dead ends in Egypt. There's rebellions and wilderness wanderings and all kinds of stuff going on. But he gives them a little Bible overview. So you get, if you have a look down, verse 2 to 3, you see his promise to the patriarchs. Then verse 5 to 7, you've got the exodus from Egypt. 8 to 10, and we saw back in our numbers series about a year ago, the wilderness wanderings. And then 11 to 13, you see them entering Canaan, the kind of stuff we've been seeing these last couple of months and we know the story so we lose the surprise but this is unexpected every step of the way this is God he makes the promises he protects his people he provides for them it's all of him from start to finish this should never have happened I mean even just look at Abraham as a little case study in verse 2 Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. And our problem is we think Abraham, we think father of the faith. He is the one who trusted God. It was credited to him as righteousness. He was the one who had it all together. He's the example. The reality is, verse 2, Abraham worshipped and served other gods along with his family. He doesn't have illustrious beginnings. He wasn't simply plucked from obscurity. He was plucked from idolatry. He was far from God. He was an enemy of God, naturally. And yet then the transition from two to three, but I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. But I, he was lost, but I, says the Lord, this should never have happened. And just to prove that God simply doesn't sort of kick things off and stand back and let it all pan out, it's all of him. You get it again and again and again. God says, I did this. Verse 3, I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. And I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau. Verse 5, then I sent Moses and Aaron. And I afflicted the Egyptians. And I did there. And I brought you out. And verse 6, and I brought your people out of Egypt. All of him. 
maybe our hearts start asking the question, well, hang on, there can't all be you, God. What, what, any of us, verse 12 to 13, no, he just double underlines it in case there's any doubt in our minds. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your sword and bow. Okay, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities that you did not build and you live in them and eat from their vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. You did not do it, Israel. I did this for you. There's no wiggle room there. You can't get this wrong. And so do you see how, how offensive some of this is to the kind of people who swim in the seas of positive self-esteem? where we're told that we can achieve anything we set our minds to. Where we're told that the sky's the limit, guys. If you believe you can achieve. And yet here's the thing. What if this world is not all about us? What if it's not about how amazing we are and what we do defines us? What if it's about him and us looking to him and all that we have being from him? What if he is God and we are not God? It's especially true in matters of salvation. It's the God who makes the promises to them. It's he who provides for them. It's he who protects them, even when they wandered off. I speak to people today even, and they're still very confused about what it actually means to be somebody who follows Jesus, to be forgiven by God. There's still this story out there that says, well, it's about good behavior. It's about making the grade. It's about keeping your nose clean. It's about staying out of trouble. I, I know this Christian thing. I know that's what it is. And yet they've missed it. They've missed this concept of grace. And here we get this snapshot of the bigger story, a little snapshot of a big story, a God who makes a glorious promise and a people who... You just need to trust him. Just cling on. And we lose the surprise because we don't think we're that bad, actually. Or we do think we're not too bad, actually. I know I'm not perfect, but there's some good stuff in me, God. I can see why you like me. I can maybe see why you pick me, yeah? And we have these hearts that love to take the credits. And you see, their story is our story. Ours just goes a bit further. They stop at the promised land. We have Jesus dying on a cross and then we have an empty tomb and we have a risen and exalted saviour at the Father's right hand waiting for his return, gathering in his people. Not for some kind of little bit of the earth but actually the new heavens and the new earth where we'll have our final rest. And we know we kind of can't deal with our own sin and we can't rescue ourselves and we sort of know that but we sometimes don't live like that. So maybe we're there trying to sort of cover up and hide shame that we still feel even though he's forgiven us and been good to us and poured out grace upon us. As if Jesus hasn't dealt with it, as if, as if his grace isn't enough. We're there trying to kind of cover ourselves and our sin even though he's done it. Or maybe we seek to kind of pay God back in some way so we don't feel quite so indebted to him. Perhaps so we don't feel quite like he can ask anything of us and we're not entirely his. We've, we still own a bit of us. But it's all of him. It's all of him. I did it. I did it. I did it. You did not do it. You did not do it. You did not do it, says the Lord. And you know, actually, I think that's where true self-esteem does come from, knowing that the God who made us and who loves us 
and who shows us grace despite what we're like. That is where self-esteem must come from. It's being honest about who we are and yet grasping onto who God is and what he's done for us. And so he's fulfilled his promises. He's given them rest. They, they simply had to trust and to follow and to listen and to obey. And for us, he has fulfilled his promises. We have rest now. We will have rest forever. We simply have to trust and to listen and to follow and obey. And Joshua tells them this drama of grace, the way in which the Lord has provided. But then you get this weird thing going on at about verse 14. In an almost paradoxical way, the J- Joshua urges his people to live out that grace. That is, because of what God has done and what he is like, because of the story of grace, well, now there's something for you to do. I don't know if, if it's just me, but I find sometimes in our Christian culture, we can think that any kind of effort in living the Christian life is now unnecessary. We As if someone who lives by grace, we don't need to be active in any way. We can just be passive and put our feet up. Any kind of hard work and sweat or effort and struggle and someone kind of points the finger and says, ah, you're a legalist. But the second half of the passage just seems to knock that on the head. He's looked back and shown us the drama of grace. Now he looks ahead and shows us the demands of grace. But because of who you are, because of what the Lord has done for you, because of the fact you're part of his family... Now here's what we do. Here is how we live. Here's what it means to be a part of that family. Now I'm going to read um, 14 to 24 again for us. And there's a key verb going on um, in this passage. Uh, I want you to try and spot it and we'll see if we get it by the time we get to verse 24. Um, I'll try and not say emphasis on the verb just to make it too easy. Verse 14, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we'll serve the Lord. And the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes, he protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we travelled and the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land, we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you're witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we're witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Anybody got any suggestions? Thank you. It's striking, isn't it? Joshua has got this repetition thing going on. As if we will miss it. Perhaps as if our hearts pull against it. Serve him alone. Joshua pleads with his people, will will you serve him? 
Now we'll look at this in a bit, but there is an apparent sort of paradox, though, at the heart of the speech. I think there's something of the tension that sits actually at the heart of the Old Covenant. It's a conflict between, if you like, verse 14 and verse 19. You see it now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness, verse 14. But then verse 19, Joshua says to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. I urge you, you must serve him, but just to say you can't. We'll come on to that in a bit. How are they going to serve him? I think there are four aspects that he outlines for them. Um, The first one is their clear away idols. Get rid of them. Clear away idols. And personally, I found this very striking as he pleads with them. He's mentioned it a number of times over the weeks as we've been going through Joshua again and again and again, urging them to serve the Lord alone and not to go with idols. But you know, it seems as if there are three lots of physical idols still there among the people. And they're still serving them. You get it in verse 14 and 15, you get it in 23 as well. But you've got um, 14, you've got gods from beyond the Euphrates River and gods from Egypt. And then verse 15, you've got the gods of the Amorites. Verse 23 as well, throw away the foreign gods that are among you. Gods from various times in the past that they've seemingly squirreled away. They've still got them in their stuff, it seems. Isn't that weird? Maybe they're just covering their bases. Maybe just in case it turns out that back in the God of Israel was actually the wrong horse. Maybe they've got them for superstitious reasons. Maybe just to not be quite so different. Just to fit in a bit with the neighbours. They're all doing it, so maybe we will as well. Maybe hearts that are just easily drawn to these other gods. And yet the gods of Egypt are the gods of Oxford that we store away that hold on to us, that bury into us, that everyone else seems to be bowing down to, so we'll just maybe join in, that seems so malleable and such a great way of actually getting something of what we want. They promise us so much. It's extraordinary, isn't it? You'd think that this huge family walking through the wilderness and God provides manna and water and quails for them and he takes them across the Jordan and into Jericho and they defeat I and maybe the sun stands still and you're thinking maybe we just maybe leave our gods behind these ones here these little ones we brought with us maybe he really is the true God and yet it seems they've kept hold of them as he says throw them away but friends we can't do this this is not for us the Lord knows the little gods that we keep squirreled away in our lives. And he is a jealous God and he says, get rid of them. Perhaps you know what they are for you, where they are for you. Maybe where in the week you see them coming out into your life, the things that you keep running back to because you think they will provide this time. But he says, get rid. With his help, we must get rid of them. Problem is, they're like boomerangs. And we throw them away, and there they are again. And we throw them away, and there they are again. And he says, get rid, and keep getting rid of them. For Joshua and his family, verse 15, he says, well, we will serve the Lord. And the people seem to have understood, and they recount the Lord's actions and work, and resounding, they follow suit as well, verse 18. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. 
So the first one then is clear away idols. I guess our question is how? And I think we get an answer in verse 23 when he says, change your heart. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Isn't he just saying, repent and believe, turn from them to him again? It's the once in a lifetime thing and it's the daily thing. By heart, he means something of the the core of who they are, the core of who we are, the foundational us is the heart. And so yield your heart, in other translations, incline your heart, turn towards him, face him, away from the false gods who can be fashioned and made and carried and can't provide what they promise. And turn them to him, the true God, who fashioned us and made us and carries us and who can provide what he promises. And it certainly asks me, where is my heart focused? Where do I go for life? When the chips are down, what do I trust? Whom do I trust? When things are uncertain, when life is hard, where do you go for life? What is it? How do you self-medicate, perhaps? And the question is, do we go to him, the true gods, or do we go to them? Worthless gods and idols of the nation. Presumably they've been putting their trust in big god and little gods that they had in their bags. I guess that's what's been going on. Divided hearts, half-heartedness. Now he says you need this single-minded commitment, people of Israel. Morden Rhodes. Repent and believe. Turn and keep turning. Incline your hearts to him. The third one is count the cost. Verse 19 to 22. And I think this is where Joshua comes at us with a big fat dose of realism. And he's as if he's reading the small print out by megaphone. These are the warnings. Israel, you can't do it. You'll mosey off, he will judge you, he's holy, he's jealous, he can't simply ignore your rebellion. You know what he's like. Come on, read the small print. We saw it lots last week with the leaders in chapter 23. Don't turn away from him, don't wander away from the God of life. Don't get your idols out again. Don't forsake him for them again, he said. And he keeps saying it. And I take it as something of a warning to keep them to being faithful, to know what they're signing up to, to remember what God is like. But there's truth as well, utter truth, that they, they can't serve him. Actually, even this side of the cross and the new covenant, we struggle, we can't serve him as we ought. What's striking in 31, verse 31, is they did seem to, for this generation at least, Follow the Lord faithfully for a time. But Joshua's right. Sooner or later our hearts get duped. We treasure other things. They're told to incline, to yield their hearts. But we never do it for long. 
And as we saw last week, you reach the book of Judges and the next generation are completely snared by Canaanite gods. They've forgotten him and they will worship the Baals and the Ashtoreths and you get this cycle after cycle of rebellion, retribution, repentance and repeat. Round and round again. And they said they'd never run after them and they did. And they said they'd follow him forever and they didn't. How do you stop this cycle? How do you do it? You need something that's more than simply being really sorry and saying we'll never do it again and we'll turn over a new leaf. You need a new heart. And so we have a new covenant. God's Holy Spirit living in his people. Which means we have soft, malleable hearts that are able to turn and to keep turning and to keep saying no to sin, to turn away from idols, to turn towards him. It means we're able to to put off the old self each day and put on the new self and follow Christ. It means we daily turn away from foreign gods and towards him, the true God. But of course, the second way the new covenant changes things shapes the way we read verse 19 is that the Lord will finally and truly forgive our rebellion and our sins. Because Jesus was cut off and because he faced separation and judgment for his people, so we can be included and safe and his. And when we are unfaithful and when our hearts don't yield and when we do run after the gods of Oxford once again, then we repent, but we can be secure and sure that he has forgiven us because Jesus took our punishment upon himself. He was cut off that we might not be cut off. So clear away idols. Change your heart and count the cost. The third one then, it formalizes, sorry, the fourth one then, it formalizes it under covenant choices, just to try and cram them into C's. But that is together, corporately, they decide they're going to serve the Lord. And the shape of the chapter, I'm told, is the shape of an ancient Near Eastern covenant contract. You get the kind of things you would expect. You get a sacrifice, you get a witness, you get a document in verse 25 and 26. Ours is a God who makes covenants with his people, which is extraordinary. And a people who agree to follow him. And then it all finishes with a kind of happily ever after at the end, 29 onwards. You get this, at least happily ever after for this generation. You get an affirmation of Joshua in 29. He's described as the servant of the Lord, which is Moses-type language. Shows how important he was. And then you you get his burial in the land, in his city, the land promised them. And then you get Joseph's bones in verse 32, picking up Genesis 50 and verse 25. Finally, his bones are laid to rest at home in the land that was promised by the Lord. And then you get Eleazar, who's the high priest. Um, he was to Joshua what Aaron was to Moses in verse 33. And you have the end of the era, but not the end of the story. It's kind of a happily ever after, but a dot, dot, dot. What one generation is gone, but we at least learn about his son Phineas, verse 33. There's another generation to come. 
And I take it there are questions that we're meant to be asking at that point. There's the, God's given them the land. Can they keep it? Will this next generation serve as they've promised they will? Will they finish the job? Will they clear up the rest of the Canaanites who are still there? Will they throw away the idols from Egypt and from beyond the Euphrates and from the Amorites that they promised they will? Will they yield their hearts, inclining them towards the Lord? Will they faithfully live in the light of the grace he's poured out upon them, the demands of that grace to trust him and his faithfulness? And so the question Joshua asks of us is, will we? Maudlin Road, will we? As we, his people, see this drama, this story of God's grace in our own lives, all of him, his work to rescue us, to make promises to us, to protect us, to preserve us, but then the call to live out that grace, the, the daily demands of living out that grace, to clear away idols, to change our hearts, to yield them, to incline them towards the Lord, to count the cost of what it means to follow him and then to choose to follow under the new covenant. And the question Joshua asks of us is, will we? When we seem what kind of God he is, the kind of God who makes these promises, will we be a people who will trust him? Will we be a people who will trust him each and every day? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we reach this point at the end of Joshua thankful for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he has secured rest for his people perfectly. Thank you that he shapes and changes the way we read verse 19 because by his death and resurrection and ascension and sending his spirit to live in his people, we're able to serve you, to turn to you, to put to death the old self, to put on Christ. Thank you that you will forgive our rebellion and sins because he was cut off for us. And yet, Lord, we long that you would be at work in us, please. Be at work in us that we might daily forsake the foreign gods whom we still too easily cling to. The gods of Oxford, the gods of the West. Give us single-minded devotion that we might serve you and love you and incline our hearts towards you. Thank you for your drama of grace that we read in the pages of Scripture. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your work for us. Thank you that it is all of you and all of grace. Help us to live that out, please, as your children. In your son's name. Amen.